Okay, just a reminder, we have a couple of trips that are up on the Dean Bible Ministries website, and especially the Egypt trip. Uh, if you are interested in going, you need to let me know ASAP, because the tour hosts want a head count by the 1st of May. Also, um, Camperete, be in prayer for Camperete and all, getting all the details, everything ready for that, and kids signing up. That's July 14th to 20th. And then Vacation Bible School will be July uh, 8th through 10th. And we need some volunteers for Vacation Bible School, and Mark Friedrich is the person to contact on that. Also, uh, we have uh, two or three people that you need to be in prayer for. Uh, one is Pastor Dan Ingram because of this thing that's been going on with him. and They've identified it as a tumor. And so you need to be in prayer for, for Dan and for the treatment there and uh, that all of that will go well. Also be in prayer for Roger Riley, who uh, tried to fly the other day and uh, didn't make it very far as he fell through the ceiling of his garage and landed and broke uh, several fingers and his elbow and uh, some other things. So he, Roger really needs prayer. And then um, Tuts is uh, out of the hospital. They transferred her to Buckingham, which is a sort of an intermediate care facility uh, to get her a little therapy before she's uh, ready to go home. So uh, those three prayer requests are, are significant for right now. And uh, please bring, be in prayer for all of those. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are in right spiritual relationship with the Lord. Scripture uses terms like walking according to the Spirit, walking by means of the Spirit, and we are to be in close fellowship with Him. When we sin, that fellowship is broken, and we do not enjoy that. The Holy Spirit doesn't leave us, but that filling ministry is no longer operational so we will. Um, uh, we need to confess sin in order to recover that, and that means simply to admit or acknowledge our sin to God, and He immediately forgives us and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful we can come together this evening to be strengthened, encouraged by your word, to learn more about how you sustain us and protect us and provide for us, and that uh, you are the one who will uh, make all things right as we come to the end of human history, and you are the one who will uh, be glorified as we walk by means of the Spirit. Father, we're thankful that we have the privilege of prayer Scripture says we have not because we ask not. And, Father, we pray specifically for 
uh, these three people I mentioned earlier for Betty Joan Westfall and for Roger Riley and Dan Ingram and pray that you will uh, give their doctors, caregivers, wisdom, skill, that you will heal them and strengthen them and that they will be a tremendous testimony to you as they go through these these health trials and tests. Father, we're thankful for your word that is a source of our strength, teaching us that you will never leave us or forsake us and that you will always protect us and provide for us and that we need to understand your grace for it is in that grace that we stand. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. We are in 1 Peter chapter 5. This is lesson 166, which is a lot of lessons for a five-chapter book, but we took a long time in the middle of it to go through uh, uh, apologetics. We spent about six, five or six months dealing with the whole topic of apologetics coming out of uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, uh, verse, verse 15, that we are to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. And tonight we come to the end of the series. First uh, Peter five eleven through fourteen. As we uh, wrap things up, and the title for this message is what Peter states in verse in verse fourteen, where he says, "This is the true grace of God in which you stand," and that this probably refers to everything that he has said in this epistle. the The key word throughout. Uh, First Peter is the word grace again and again and again. So last time, as we were wrapping things up in the main part of the epistle before we get to this final conclusion, Peter wrote, but may the God of all grace, again, taking us back to understanding the unmerited favor of God, what he has provided for us, how he strengthens us, that he called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. And then he says, uh, after you have suffered a while, he will, the text says perfect, but this really isn't the word perfect. It is the first word we see here in this list. It's katartizo, and it means to restore, uh, mend, uh, or create or strengthen. And here it probably has the idea that he will restore us. This is talking about the end of time, that there is a perfect restoration. He will make all things right is another way that we could put that. And then he will uh, establish us. And this is the second word in the list, steridze, or steridzo in the, in the dictionary form, which means to support or make firm or to strengthen and uh, so support or make firm is probably a better translation here because the next word, stenao, has the idea of t- to strengthen. It's negative, which is asthenao, means to weaken or to make sick. So it's a lack of strength. So that's the idea that he supports us, he restores us, he will uh, strengthen us, and then he will complete the foundation or or establish us, as it were, because we are in the uh, body of Christ, the household of God, and Christ is the foundation, so he completes that. So these words are all designed to bring courage to those who are facing uh, uh, adversity, those who are facing the possible persecution, uh, rejection, 
opposition for their faith and maybe even overt persecution. And we are so blessed in this country because that is not something that we have historically faced as believers, but I believe it is on the horizon. And the most important thing we can do in these times is to prepare ourselves by internalizing the Word, memorizing Scripture, reading through Scripture over and over again, spending time learning the Word, being being challenged to go forward in our understanding of Scripture by coming to a Bible class and being taught the Word and studying the notes and all of these things because there may come a time when we don't have any of that available to us We may be like many of the apostles. We may be in prison. We may be in jail. We may be in a situation where the only way we can get together uh, with other believers is like in places in China where it's just two or three and you're talking whispers and you're always afraid that somebody's going to see you or or be aware of you and then the police will come. And from what I understand, there have been... Uh, hundreds of thousands of Christians who have been killed in China in recent years. And uh, we also know of the terrorist attacks, the ones that took place uh, just this last uh, weekend on Resurrection Sunday in Sri Lanka, where these Islamic terrorists came in and, uh, and, and killed over almost 300 and many others were wounded. And then we have situations like what is going on in Nigeria, where you have whole villages that are just being exterminated by uh, the uh, armies of Islam, the religion of peace. And it is not at all peaceful. And what we have seen in the West, because they've rejected God and their suppressed truth and unrighteousness, they can't identify the problem. They, they ter- have turned a blind eye to what Islam is doing in Europe and here in the United States. And if you say something like I just said, you're branded an Islamophobe and you're just dismissed immediately because you're just not a person of peace and you're not a person who understands and is willing to open their arms and, and let all the Muslims come into the country. Now, not every Muslim is going to be a terrorist, but not every German was you know, held to the uh, vile doctrines of the Nazis, but they were led by the radicals, and they followed them, and they did what the radicals said, what the fanatics among the Nazis said, and that's what happens with Islam. It's not the uh, 70 or 80 percent that is somewhat moderate and is not inclined to violence because they will be led by the 30 percent that are. And and that is exactly what where we are in this country, and we're denying it. So we have no idea what's going to happen in this country in the next 20 years. Somebody told me the other day that they were listening to something I taught about 18 years ago, and I went through a list of several things apparently that were around the corner and that we could see things like uh, uh, homosexual marriage, and any and the branding of anybody against it as as being unloving and uncaring and hateful and i w- apparently went through a list of things and they said it's amazing everything is coming to pass like you said that was almost 20 years ago well it's going to get worse folks and that's what peter is warning and has warned his readers about that they're facing opposition and ridicule and rejection and that 
overt persecution was going to come. And so one day we know that God will make all things right and he, he will wipe away every tear and there will be no pain and no sorrow, no suffering again, and we won't remember it. But in the meantime, we may face some incredibly difficult times that it's not pleasant to think about, and uh, we're especially concerned about our children and our grandchildren because things will be much, much worse for them than we ever, ever thought or ever, ever imagined. And so as Peter comes to the end of this, uh, this epistle, where he has warned and encouraged and challenged them to stand in the grace of God, he concludes this last part in verse 11 by saying, To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And that's what you read if you're using a King James Version, if you're using a New King James Version, that's the reading. But if you have an ESV or NASB or NIV you know, if you're NIV positive, then you've got a real problem. Uh, but if you've got one of those other uh, versions, then uh, it will only say to him be dominion forever and ever. And so this points out there's actually two textual problems in this verse, two alternate readings. And the one, one of them it leaves out uh, the glory and the other one leaves out the second ever. Now, there's a lot more evidence uh, in the issue with the, the glory and the vast, not only the vast majority of ma manuscripts, but most, uh, I think, three of the four uh, manuscripts, uh, Egyptian manuscripts, the older manuscripts that um, uh, have uh, forever and ever, but there are some that only have, uh, only have forever. Now, just to remind you, when there are textual problems, what, what developed out of the late 19th century and in through most of the 20th century was a theory based on the principle that the oldest is the best, the best reading, and that dominated. And that's what many of you heard when you were uh, in your many years as you were being taught. You heard, uh, you know, critical textual criticism from that vantage point. By the 50s, that was being seriously questioned again, and the majority text, I think, is a much superior way of handling the textual evidence. I don't think it's exactly right all the time, but you always have to look at all of the, all of the data. Uh, but when you have the majority text plus one of the four uh, major manuscripts out that were discovered in Egypt, those are the oldest ones, then if you have one of those plus the majority text, I think that, that pretty much secures that as a reading, which is what you have in including the phrase, the glory. Now, the oldest is best view. It says that if you've got three or four of these uh, manuscripts discovered in, uh, in Egypt, then that's what you go with. It doesn't matter how many others there are, and it ignores the fact that that an, a much later manuscript copied, let's say, 500 years later, can be an accurate copy of what is actually an earlier man, manuscript than the 4th century manuscripts that were found uh, in in Egypt, fourth and fifth century manuscripts, those are those are pretty old. But Egypt was an area where you had a lot of heresy in the early church. Number one, and number two, because of the dry climate in the desert, 
uh, copies and, and manuscripts and scrolls were preserved longer there than in places such as Greece or, or Turkey. And remember, most of the New Testament was addressed not to people in Egypt, but to people in the area of what is now Turkey and Greece and Italy. And so because of the climate there, these older scrolls would, and parchments would not have survived as long. So there's a lot of reasons. There's a whole course on textual criticism that's under Chafer Seminary in the Dean Bible Ministries uh, website, and it's Ron Minton taught that course for us at a Chafer conference several years ago, and that's a good intro. If you've never listened to it, it will give you a little more understanding as to what's going on, and Ron is also a strong advocate of the majority text view. So the best reading is, to him be the glory forever and ever. And so what does it mean to give God the glory? What does it mean to, for him to have the glory? And I pointed out last time that the word glory is used 11 times in 1 Peter. Many of the references relate to something in the future when we're either in phase three or it's talking about what happens at the judgment seat of Christ. Others refer to the future glory of Jesus Christ, and all of these passages are, are significant. But there are, I think, three passages that are, are important to look at. One of them is in 1 Peter 1, 7 that says that the genuineness or that the testing, uh, the approval of your faith, that is the doctrine, the teaching that you rely on, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, when we have passed the test and received rewards, that brings glory to Jesus Christ. Now, this word glory, as I've pointed out, means to to give uh, credit for, it means to boast, or it means to give praise uh, to God, to give the credit to God for what he has done, and because this shows the the truthfulness, the integrity of his of his character, that's why the word glory sometimes is just a way of summarizing the essence of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, means for all have shinned, sinned and fall short of the essence of God. Uh, another key verse in First Peter is First Peter four eleven that says. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Because we are in Christ, that which we do by walking by the Spirit and applying the Word brings glory to God. And we'll talk about that term in just a minute. And then it says, related to Jesus, to whom, to him, that is, belong the glory and the dominion. That's the same phrase we have here in verse 10. So the fact that that, uh, we had this textual problem related to whether glory was there or not is reinforced by the fact that it's present with dominion or power in, uh, in 411. God is glorified when we obey him and when we trust him because the idea of glory is the idea of something that is important, something that's significant, something that is weighty. That's that's the idea in the uh, Old Testament word uh, kavod. 
And when we are obeying God, we bring glory to him because we are showing that he is the one without whom we cannot live. He is the sole source of ability. He's the sole source of, 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 of provision. He is the sole source of help and aid and strength. And so we are showing that without him, there is no life. Without him, there's no ability to have joy, real joy and peace in life and to truly appropriate that <coughs> excuse me in our every everyday life and then there is a third verse that is in 1 Peter 4:13 that says but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings that when his glory is revealed that is his essence there and that also helps to inform that what what we're talking about here to him be the glory is a recognition that to him uh, be the praise and let him get all of the credit and boasting for everything good that is done in our life. And then the second phrase is the phrase dominion. And this is simply the Greek word kratos, which means power or might. That's how it's used in Ephesians chapter 6 when it talks about uh, the walking in the might of God. Uh, so this is our, our standing in the power of God. So it's not dominion which has the idea of, of sovereignty or rulership. It is just power. And so that reminds us that God is omnipotent and that his power is is greater than any circumstance, any situation, any opposition that we face. God's power is greater than any human force, any demonic force, uh, any uh, opposition that might come. There is nothing greater than God's power. And in light of the fact that this persecution might come upon them, it may come from political powers, it may come from religious authorities, it might just come from the opposition of their their community, whatever that may be, and that that would be the source of opposition and ridicule and rejection and persecution. But God's power is greater than all of that. And it doesn't matter what may be said about us. It doesn't matter what uh, forces are arrayed against us. It doesn't matter that, that we may be taken into court and found guilty for things, and we see evidence of that with Christians now uh, being taken to court where the infringement and the, of our uh, First Amendment rights as well as intimidation, that if you say certain things or do certain things, if you're a school teacher, if you are a professor, if you are at work, if you do certain things, or say certain things, then you may be taken to court uh, because somebody has found it offensive. And so what we find is that God, God's power is greater than any circumstance or any, any situation that, that we may run up against. And so in this benediction, uh, what Peter is saying is that God is the one who gets all the praise, all the adoration. He's the one who gets the credit and the boasting for sustaining us because he is the center of our life. Without him, there's no life. That's what it means to glorify God, not to say, well, to God be the glory. There's all these little Christian uh, cliches that a lot of people use that 
are rendered meaningless, like saying praise the Lord. No, praise the Lord is a command to praise the Lord, to tell people what he has done, not to say praise the Lord. And so when we say, well, to God be the glory, uh, that's trite. It's a cliche. What we need to be doing is demonstrating in our lives and by the things that we say and do that God is the the centerpiece, the one without whom nothing in our life matters or works or comes together, that he's the only one who sustains us and gives us joy. And so this is how uh, Peter brings this to a conclusion, as indicated by his use of the term amen, which is from the Hebrew, and it has to do with uh, faith with believing something and, it, and establishing the fact that this is this is true. I believe it. This is certain. It comes from a root that has to do with stability, and so form of the Hebrew word is used uh, to describe the foundations under the pillars of, of the temple. So it relates to something that is steadfast, immovable truth that we can rely on. And so this is how Peter brings this to an end. And then we have his uh, parting statements. And these are significant. Sometimes it's simple to you look at these things and you say, well, um, this just is a couple of parting references and it, it's not that important. But there's some interesting things that are controversial in these last three verses. And so in First Peter 5.12 we read, by Sylvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. So this is a key verse in the conclusion stating, restating that it is the grace of God that is what we stand in. This is where we set our anchor. And how do we know what the grace of God is. It is God's provision for us for everything that we need in order to face whatever opposition we may face, whatever difficulties we we may face. God freely gives us of all these things. He's freely given us of our Savior, our redemption. All of this is is free. There's nothing we do to earn or or deserve it. So we'll break this down. We'll look at three questions. First of all, who is Sylvanus? Sylvanus, we'll see, is a Latin, Latinized form of the Greek name Silas. And who is exactly is Sylvanus or Silas? And why then can Paul say that call him a faithful brother? What's the significance of Silas? The second thing is what does it mean when he says, by Sylvanus, I have written to you? And that's another significant issue is just exactly what does that mean, and there's a lot of debate over that. And then third, we have the, his last statement of the summary message of the epistle about the true God, gospel, uh, uh, the true grace of God in which you stand. So who is Silas or who is Sylvanus? Well, there's... Um, several issues involved in the mention of Silas here and this phrase uh, that we see that it is through uh, Silas. Uh, What does it mean 
that it is by Silas. That's one way in which that is, is translated. On the one hand, you have liberals, theological liberals who deny the, the foundation of theological liberalism is that, that there's a denial of supernaturalism. That is, they look at the universe as a closed universe that God does not really interact with the affairs of men. God hasn't created anything, and there's no such thing as any supernatural revelation. There's no such thing as miracles. There's no such thing as divine intervention into the affairs of, of man. And so the Bible is not a, a book or composed of books that were revealed by God to man through human instruments who wrote the scriptures. In liberalism, the Bible is a book about God or about uh, human interactions with what they thought was God, and therefore it is a human book written by erring humans and is uh, comprised of errors. Uh, it's just the experiences that different people had of ha- have had with God. Uh, they they don't really believe there is an objective God who has revealed through men, and so they deny uh, inerrancy. They deny infallibility. They deny the inspiration of Scripture, and they go to something like this as as evidence that even. Some of the books in the Bible are not written by who they claim to be written by, that Peter didn't write it, that somebody named, uh, perhaps named Silvanus actually wrote it. In some versions, they deny Peter as, as the author uh, at all, that, that it was claimed to have been written by Peter. This is just a pseudonym to give it legitimacy. And uh, then this... Uh, using the name of Silas also gives it legitimacy, but because the Greek in the in the in the epistle is different from uh, the way Peter would have spoken or written, then they say that that this is a way to cover that up. Um, that's the basic issue here: is that those who claim uh, who deny that Peter is the author claim that the Greek of First Peter is too good. It's the grammar is too good. The uh, vocabulary is too sophisticated for a Galilean fisherman who was basically uh, uneducated. He didn't go through any sort of formal education or training uh, in language. Then there are those who claim that Peter is the author, and among those who are conservatives, their view is that Peter is the author, that he wrote under divine inspiration, but Silas was his amanuensis. Is that a new word for people? It means it's his secretary, took dictation, okay? First time I ran across the word amanuensis, I was... It was a couple of years before I went to seminary, but I was reading about uh, inspiration, reading books on inerrancy and infallibility. And this is a word that you'll run into if you read anything in this area. You read in bibliology, you'll read about the process of inspiration and what about those who wrote down the words of the apostles. And there is an example that we'll see in just a minute 
at the end of Romans where Paul had an amanuensis, had a secretary who took dictation and wrote it down for him. Is that what Peter's talking about here? And in their view, Silas is the amanuensis who wrote down Peter's words, and then he came along and he changed the vocabulary, elevated it, cleaned it up, uh, cleaned up the grammar so that Peter sounded a little better and a little more sophisticated. Uh, In the conservative view of this, which is one of the views that I was taught in New Testament intro when I was at seminary, is that God the Holy Spirit would have worked both in Peter as well as in uh, in Silas, that that, uh, Silas would have done this under inspiration of the Holy Spirit under the authority of Peter as as an apostle. And so uh, when it was all said and done, Peter signed off on it because this was the word of God. And technically, there's nothing wrong with that view. But there's a third view, and that is the view that states that uh, Peter is the sole author. He wrote it. There's no problems with him having this level of knowledge of Greek. This is some 30 years or more after, uh, after the crucifixion. But it was in that time Peter could have learned the language, but there's nothing wrong with thinking that Peter had a very good understanding of Greek just from the fact that he grew up in Galilee. Galilee had a lot of Gentiles in it. Koine Greek was was a common language spoken among the Gentiles and among the Jews. And we know of a lot of examples, you do too, of people who may not be very well educated in a formal sense, but they can speak English quite well and they can speak Spanish quite well because they grow up learning how to talk in both languages. And then, uh, and the only time in Scripture that Peter is called uneducated is by the rabbis. And in their term, he's uneducated not because he hasn't been taught anything, but because he did not go through the pharisaical rabbinical school, and so he doesn't fit their pattern. So there's no basis for really saying that Peter is uh, uneducated or illiterate or even implying anything of the type. And uh, the phrase, though, that we have here is a phrase, dia, plus the genitive of the person's name, and we know from passages like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, when Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that dia plus the genitive indicates means, but that this is really an idiom for Silas being the messenger who carried the epistle and not talking about him as an amanuensis. And then there are those who combine the second view that Peter... Uh, used Silas as an amanuensis, and he also carried the letter, and that's the view that Roger Raymer holds, who wrote the commentary on First Peter in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, and I believe he was a classmate of mine as well when I was in seminary. So we asked this question of who was Silas, <clears throat> and the name Silas is a Greek name, and the name Silvanus is the Latinized form of the Greek Silas. So that would be the name that he would use in in Roman culture. And he's referred to several times in the New Testament under under both names. Silas would have been the Greek form of his Aramaic name. 
and we know that he was one of the leaders in the early church. I have a couple of verses we'll put up in a minute, but in Acts 15.22, after the Jerusalem council, he was one of those who was a leader in the Jerusalem church and was a messenger that carried the, the, uh, the decision, the decree of the Jerusalem council to the other uh, churches. So uh, Silas is very well respected. We know from Acts 16.37, he was in the jail in uh, Philippi, in Philippi, with, uh, with Peter, I mean, excuse me, with Paul, and he had Roman citizenship according to Acts 16.37. He was also listed by Paul as his companion along with Timothy in 1 Thessalonians 1.1 1, 1, and in 2 Thessalonians 1.1. 1, 1, and then he's also mentioned in 2, uh, that should be 2 Corinthians, not 2 Colossians. That's not in the Bible. Uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 1.19. So a little typo there. So Luke refers to uh, him as Paul's companion in most of those references there in Acts fifteen twenty-two to uh, or Acts sixteen nineteen and twenty-five and twenty-nine, Acts seventeen four to fifteen and eighteen uh, five. So he is a companion of the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey, and uh, later on parts of his third missionary journey. So he knew the Apostle Paul well, and even later now apparently he is a companion to Peter and wherever Peter is. Now that's the issue we'll get into in the next, in the next verse. So Silas is a, viewed as a mature leader in the early church and a close companion to both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. Now this phrase, dia... Siluanu, or through Silvanus, is a way, an idiom of expressing the messenger that carried the epistle. They would have argued that, um, not that this doesn't mean that he is the uh, secretary, the amanuensis, but that he carried the letter. And the way we get that for some support, is in Acts 15, 22, and 23. This is after the Jerusalem council has finished. We read, Then it pleased the apostles and elders. The apostles refer to the, uh, all the leaders of the, of the church, the foundation of the church, the 12 apostles, which includes the apostle Paul, and elders. Those would be the pastors of the churches in and around Jerusalem. Uh, with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company, and that probably means choice men, select men, uh, not just any man being selected, but those who are qualified as trustworthy, select men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas. This is the first mention of Silas, uh, leading men among the brethren. So that gives us a good understanding of who, it, who, who they are. And then, now the next line, he says, they wrote this letter. Now who's the they? The they would refer back to the apostles. They wrote this letter by them, okay? Um, that refers to uh, 
by the hand of them, uh, through them, through Keros, through the hand of them. They wrote this letter. They sent it by way of these, all of these men. So that that is a term there that they didn't, they weren't writing the letter down because you have too many men who would be involved in that. Uh, one person wrote it, but it is sent by them to the churches in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Elsewhere, you have an example for in uh, Romans 16.22, where Paul used completely different language to refer to his amanuensis. He wrote, at the end of Romans, you have the statement, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle. So he's not claiming to be the author of the epistle, but he's the one who wrote it down at Paul's dictation. In extra-biblical literature, that is literature of that time period that is not in the Bible, uh, in the papyri, that's the uh, papyrus. We found uh, thousands of papyri of the Koine Greek in the first century, second century, and in the church fathers who wrote in Greek, Dia plus the genitive of the proper name is the way of describing the courier. You have example after example of this particular uh, idiom. Now, some object that, well, Silas couldn't have gone to all of these different places that Peter mentions at the beginning of the epistle, where he says to the pilgrims of the diaspora in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia that Silas couldn't have gone there, but that's not necessary. There's at least one example in the papyri of somebody being sent. For example, Pontus would be where the port was, and he would go there, meet leaders from these churches in these other areas, and they would make copies of Peter's letter, and then they would send those out. So it wasn't necessary that, uh, that Silas be the one to take it to each and every, every group. So this uh, this helps us to understand what is being meant what is meant here that it is by Silas he is the one who carries the letter he's referred to by Peter as a faithful brother and this is documented through all those references we have in Acts and he says a faithful brother is I consider him I have written to you briefly and then he gives the purpose. He states the purpose of the epistle. He says it is to challenge and encourage them to stand in true grace. He says, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying. That's describing all of the contents. He is exhorting them. This is the uh, second word on the screen, parakaleo, which means to encourage or to challenge, to exhort or to implore somebody to do something. So he's moving them, challenging them to a specific course of action. And that's seen in all of the imperative verbs that we've seen throughout this epistle. And by doing that, they become a, a living testimony to the grace of God, that all of us are being observed by the angels. We become a testimony to the angels in our obedience to God, and we become a testimony to human beings. We are living our life. We witness either with our lips and with our life. You have to witness with your lips because people don't always get the message when you just keep silent. You have to tell them the specifics of the gospel. 
So they are to, they're being challenged to test, be a witness and a testimony to the true grace of God, not a fake view of grace, but a true view of grace in which they stand. This is a common way of talking about our position in Christ, but more than that, it is talking about our experience. This is, uh, the verb is histemi, which means to stay put, to stand in place. We saw it, studied it when we talked about the armor of God, to stand firm in the armor of God. And it is used in several places in this same phrase. Paul uses it in Romans 5.2, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Same phraseology. And rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So because we understand that we stand firm in grace, we're able to have joy because we can look at the end game. We have a confident expectation of the end game, and we can handle any kind of adversity that comes along. In 1 Corinthians 15.1, Paul reminds the Corinthians, he said, Moreover, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, present tense. You l- believed, and now you stand in the gospel. And then Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And we saw there it is experiential. So we are to stand firm in the true grace of God. And how we understand that when Paul says uh, this is the true grace of God, that this describes the content of the whole epistle, that he has been teaching grace is used some ten times in this epistle to remind us that everything about our spiritual life has to be grounded on the foundation of grace. And then we come to 1 Peter 5.13. Now, this is another verse that has a couple of interesting things about it. The most, uh, the two things are, who's the she? And there are some who think that the she is Peter's wife. I don't think that's the best understanding of it because uh, Peter did have a wife. He traveled with her, according to Paul in, in 1 Corinthians, and she was known, but that is not the best explanation for this. She who is in Babylon, now there's another interesting uh, word, is Babylon Babylon, or is Babylon someplace else? Is this a code word for some other city? And so this is a, a big issue, especially in the study of uh, Revelation. In the study of the book of Revelation, you have the future uh, kingdom of Babylon. And there are many people who, because Babylon is believed to have been a wasteland and nobody living there based on Old Testament uh, prophecies, uh, if you go back and study what I taught in, in Revelation, that's not exactly true. There is a very good book about Babylon by Charles Dyer, who was, I think, a year, ahead, year or so ahead of me at Dallas Seminary. 
and he does an in-depth study, came out in the late 80s, just before the Iraq War. is quite a bestseller at that time, in the early 90s. And he argues for a literal Babylon. And I believe that he has made an outstanding case that, that Babylon is never used in a spiritualized or allegorical sense. Uh, this is important to understand in both uh, the book of Revelation as well as here. In fact, what will often happen in a circular form of arguing is they will go here and say, see, uh, Peter is using Babylon here as a code word. Some use it, say it's a code word for Jerusalem. Others say that it is a code word for Rome. Why he would need to use a code word is not uh, not explained, I think, to my satisfaction at least. Uh, let me give you some things to think about. In fact, uh, uh, Andy Woods, who's president of Chafer Seminary and pastor over at Sugarland Bible Church, wrote his doctoral dissertation at Dallas Seminary on the identification of Babylon in uh, in the book of Revelation. And so he... Uh, just did an in-depth study of it and came up with a lot of excellent information, some of which is what I'm saying I got from Andy, other things I got from a few other sources, uh, like um, Dr. Fruchtenbaum's commentary on First Peter, although he thinks that she is Peter's wife, and I don't think so. But anyhow, first of all, we have to recognize that all the other references to Babylon in the Bible are literal. They're talking about literal geographical Babylon over in what is today Iraq that was somewhat southwest of Baghdad. And there's no place in the Bible, you go through all of the Old Testament, it's always referring either to the city of Babylon or to the region of Babylon or to the Babylonian Empire. Second thing that we note is that all of the other geographical references in 1 Peter, specifically those I just read in 1 Peter 1-2, all of those are literal geographical locations. He doesn't use geographical place names in an allegorical manner in, in 1 Peter or in 2 Peter. Uh, third, there's no biblical basis that any of these geographical names were uh, were a code word for Rome. The idea is that because of the political situation, that instead of talking about Rome under Nero and mentioning the literal name of Rome, that it was cloaked in secrecy and referred to as Babylon. Well, one of the arguments is that it never bothered the Apostle Paul to call Rome Rome, so that that's one argument. Another is um, is set forth by uh, Dr. Robert Thomas. We have Bob Thomas here. Uh, he went to be with the Lord last year. He is um, uh, he was one of our first speakers at the Chafer Conference. I think he was almost ninety. I think he was eighty nine years old because he was just short of his hundredth birthday when he died this last year. So he was. Uh, pretty well along then and was very sharp, uh, very cogent. He says in his commentary on Revelation, he said, to refer to the name Babylon to Jerusalem is unprecedented. He says, this view goes against the historical fact that Jerusalem is related to the people of God and Babylon to the world at large. Jerusalem is always portrayed in the scripture, even when 
Jerusalem is apostate. Jerusalem is a city of God in contrast to Babylon, which represents the kingdom of man. And you always have that. So to use Babylon as a code word, you don't have that. You do have Jerusalem in apostasy uh, described as Sodom, and you have Jerusalem described as Egypt, but never in the Old Testament is Jerusalem ever referred to as, as Babylon. And so there's no biblical reference for that. Uh, fourth point is that extra-biblical sources furnish no evidence for such a code. You can't find it in any early church writings. You can't find it in uh, any non-church writings. There's no place where uh, Babylon is identified as a code for Jerusalem. Now, when you get a little later in the church, towards the second century, then you find evidence that Babylon is used as a code word for Rome, but not until then. But, of course, that doesn't bother liberals because they don't think the New Testament was written at the time of the apostles or Jesus in the first century. They think it was written at the end of the second century and into the third century. So uh, that has to be understood. A fifth point is that for the Rome code view, uh, I mentioned this already, uh, Rome, Paul was not afraid to mention Rome by name, so why should Peter be afraid? I don't think I enumerated the first part of this, so let me give you, if you're taking notes, so you can get it right. Uh, first of all, all the other references to Babylon in the Bible are literally the city of Babylon uh, or the empire. Second, all other geographical references in First Peter are literal geographical locations. Third, there's no biblical basis for this, that Babylon... Uh, to refer to Babylon as Jerusalem is unprecedented, according to Bob Thomas, and is against the view of the use and opposition of Jerusalem to Babylon all through the Scripture. So that takes us down to the fourth point. Extra-biblical sources give no evidence for such a, a code word or allegory. And then fifth, that it, if it's necessary to use a code word for Rome, then Paul was not afraid to mention Rome by name at all, so why should Peter be afraid? And then sixth, this passage, the one that we're looking at, is the one everyone goes to to prove it, but they use this to prove it, and then because they've proven it from this verse, then they go back and and uh, uh, it's like it's true in First uh, Peter 5.13, so because 5.13 says it's spiritual, then it refers to Rome, and it's just a circular argument. There's no real basis for it whatsoever. And so that gives us a, a pretty good standing that, that Babylon is what he's talking about. So who's he talking about here? And that is, um, that's the next question, is who's the she? Well, the she, a lot of people, going back into the early church, in fact, there's even some notes made in some early manuscripts that, that substitute the word church for, for she. Uh, ecclesia is a feminine noun, and so this could easily refer to the church who is in Babylon. But contextually, if you go back to the end of verse 9 where we read, 
Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And the word that is translated brotherhood is the word autophotes. And this is a feminine noun. So you would think that maybe it's masculine because it's brotherhood, but it's a feminine noun. So that shows that grammar has nothing to do with sex. That's important. I always like Zane Hodges used to say, words have gender, but people have sex. Don't confuse the two concepts. Gender is a grammatical concept. So this could be the reference point here. The same is true. Both of them are referring to the church. And so he's referring to believers who are in Babylon. Now, why would he emphasize that? Well, I think there's uh, historical significance, even though Babylon was pretty much uh, ruined by this time. There have always been, as Charlie Dyer points out in his book, there have always been uh, Arab villages on the site of ancient Babylon. It has never been completely uninhabited. Uh, we know that Peter traveled quite a bit. He, uh, Paul refers to the fact in 1 Corinthians 9, 5 that uh, Peter traveled to Corinth along with his wife. Dionysius, who is a second century bishop of Corinth, talks about Peter visiting the church in Corinth. He would have traveled around specifically and mostly to Jewish communities because, remember, he's the apostle to the Jews, whereas Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. And Dyer shows that there was a sizable Jewish community in the close vicinity of historic Babylon. He has several sources that he cites, and then he refers to a 12th century writing by a Jew named Benjamin of Tudela who traveled to Bab- Babylon in the, in the um, 1100s, and he said that there was a community of at least 10,000 Jews about six miles from his, the location of historic Babylon. We also know that this was the site of the diaspora, this, the exile, from 586 B.C., and not all of the Jews came back from Babylon at the, um, at the end of the, the exile, and they stayed there, and there was a Jewish community there all through the first century. And in fact, later, this same Jewish community writes their own Talmud known as the Babylonian Talmud, and that is one that is available. You can buy that in translation or in the original Hebrew now, and that is very much available. So Peter, as the apostle to the Jews, would have definitely traveled to Babylon. In fact, there was a synagogue of Daniel that was uh, spoken about in Babylon that was one mile from the ruins of Nebuchadnezzar's temple of Marduk. So Babylon had a significant Jewish community, the remnants of the exile, and this is would be clearly a place that Peter would go. And so he is writing from there, and he has had a ministry there to Jewish background believers, which is why he is writing also. They would have been, had some persecution, and he's writing to encourage the others in the same way. And then we come to the last verse where Peter says to greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, this is interesting. You find this 
in various ways stated in the New Testament. For example, in Romans sixteen sixteen, greet one another with a holy kiss. That would be a distinctive type of kiss or a set-apart kiss. It's not a pure kiss. You know, remember, holy just has that word of something set apart. The churches of Christ greet you. 1 Corinthians sixteen twenty. all the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. In 2 Corinthians thirteen twelve, Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And 1 Thess 5, 26, he says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Now, one of the things that I've noticed is interesting in subcultures. If you are going to a church, I've gone to lots of different churches, and a lot of times, especially in the South, you'll see somebody you know, and you'll greet them, and you'll give them a little hug. If you go somewhere in the Jewish community, many, many times I've seen this, experienced this, you go up, and if a man is, see, if you've got to go out with a couple, you'll shake hands with the man, and the woman will step forward and offer you her cheek. And so you press cheeks and you kiss on the cheek. And this is standard. It, it, you, I never see anybody outside of the Jewish community doing that. But if I'm out in a social event with other Jews, that's how you greet man to woman. You see it again and again and again. I don't know how long that tradition has been there in the Jewish community, but this is certainly the kind of thing that Paul is talking about here as an expression of uh, love for the brethren and care for uh, one another. So in his closing statement, he says, greet one another with a kiss of love. And then he says, peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. And whenever he uses the word peace, it is not simply using the Jewish greeting. Remember, he's writing to Jewish background believers. He's not simply using the Jewish greeting of shalom, although that's part of it. Under the Holy Spirit, when these terms grace to you, which is one of Paul's favorite expressions, he would say grace to you and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is the greeting that Gentiles would give to one another. Peace or shalom is the greeting Jews would give to one another. It's given a new meaning. It is peace or grace that is in Christ. It is that peace that we have in Christ that is because of our reconciliation with the Father. And so we have peace, and because we have peace, as Hebrews writes, uh, we are to, if at all possible, maintain peace experientially with all of the brethren. And so that's what's loaded into this closing statement, peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. So that brings us to an end to an end of First Peter, and then next Thursday night we'll come back and we'll start a new study. We will start Second Peter. And Second Peter again is is quite interesting. It's not nearly as long as First Peter because it's only three chapters, but they're shorter chapters, and there are several tremendous statements and great promises and significant doctrine or teaching in Second Peter. So we'll come back next time to begin a new study in Second Peter. Father, thank you for all that you've given us, all that you've provided for us, for your protection, that you are a rock, you are our strong tower, you are our fortress, our bulwark, you are our shield, 
You are the one who has provided everything for us, and you are the one one who will make all things right, and that you will uh, bring us to the conclusion that uh, will bring us to heaven safely and securely because of Christ's death on the cross. And Father, we thank you for that, and thank you for the challenge to stand firm that we have read in First Peter and to truly experience that joy that can only come because we don't put our eyes on details, we don't put our eyes on circumstances, we don't put our eyes on, per- on people. We put our focus and hope in Jesus Christ, and that gives us stability and joy no matter what may come. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.